of George Knapp listening to That UFO Podcast and having one hell of a good time. That UFO Podcast is powered by Zencaster. Zencaster is one of the world's leading platforms for recording and hosting podcasts. The open beta strives to put the power of studio-quality remote video production into the hands of anyone with a story to tell. Features include HD video recording, studio-quality sound, chat and footnotes. All running right from your browser so you can record from anywhere without ever installing anything. Check out the links in the show description to find out more. You and I have just discussed. We can figure out why they're here. We can figure out what they want. Let me ask, that that's really, really interesting. And I often use analogies about fish when I talk about, you know, aliens, UFOs, sightings, and how that might work with two different species. The The assumption is that we're technologically advanced enough to this higher civilization that they they feel comfortable that they can have a level of communication. But for example, we wouldn't compare ourselves to a fish in the ocean and a fish would see the bottom of a boat at being on the edge of their their site and they see the kind of shimmering light around the boat and the bottom of the boat having no comprehension of what's on the boat the species on the boat or what they're doing or why they're there is it possible that these ufos that we do see in the sky and let's for a moment assume we are seeing let's go with the classic flying saucer shiny bright lights all that kind of stuff is it possible that we're so inefficiently advanced to these other civilizations that are visiting here potentially that they see us in the same way we would see a fish so to them that we are not announcing ourselves to the fish we just happen to be at the top of you know the ocean and these other saucers and other craft are here because they just see a planet and we're so so far down the pecking order so to speak that we're not even at the point of you know being the dog to be stroked and domesticated and we're just something else inhabiting this planet so the more you know, the more ways you can be puzzled. A young child looks at strange things and doesn't know they're strange and isn't puzzled. It's when you have stronger expectations that then things become puzzling and even unlikely seeming. So when you're constructing a scenario, you have to look at the whole scenario in order to see how plausible it is. So if you just say, assume they are really advanced, so advanced they don't care much about us. And then you ask, would they be you know, communicating with us or explaining themselves to us? You might say, no, given that assumption, that particular implication isn't problematic. However, that assumption is problematic with respect to other things we see. So the key point is, if there were aliens so common in the universe that they just happen to be here at the moment, then well, they would pretty much happen to be everywhere. And if they were that common that they happen to be everywhere, then why does it all look so empty? Why is the universe so unused, so dead? Uh, aliens that were that common and had any substantial aspirations to do stuff, well, they would have been doing stuff a long time ago and they would have done a lot. And then when we looked up, we would see a lot, right? So look, if you show up in the middle of a city and stand on a corner, you shouldn't be surprised if everybody just walks past you and nobody says hi. But you should notice that you're in a city. You would, it would look different than if you were in the middle of the ocean or in the forest or in a desert. The city would look different. That would be your clue that there was something going on. Not their interest in you, not how they communicated with you, but just the stuff you saw around you. So our first thing we need to explain is why does the universe look so empty and dead? 
of course, the simplest explanation of that is because it is empty and dead. There isn't anybody else out there, right? And now we say, oh, but there's some aliens visiting, and now we've got a problem. Because now we're postulating both that there are advanced creatures who are capable of enormous things and perhaps have enormous ambitions, and yet everything's dead and empty. That's the puzzle. And I suppose that's where the conversation many would take down the route of alternate dimensions, different realities. That doesn't help. Like, fine, there's other places they could go, but here's a place. Why aren't they here doing stuff with this stuff? Is that not, though, again, it's not part of your model, obviously, but I'm curious, why why is that problematic? Because to many, and many people who listen to this podcast have got different opinions on where these things may be from, and to many, it's now too too simple to expect aliens right. coming from Mars, for example, and people talk about higher beings, levels of consciousness. Why is that problematic to things? I mean, maybe I'm not understanding you, but if you look at life on Earth, and you go to a desert and you say, why? Why is this desert empty of life? Well, first of all, you look closely, it isn't empty, but to a first cut, it looks kind of empty, right? Now you might say, well, because the life that could have come to the desert, it's now in the Amazon. Well, that's not an answer because the point is life spreads everywhere it can go. Wherever life started, it went to the Amazon and it went to the ocean and it went to the poles and it went to the mountains. Right? You look at any one place and you don't say, why, why is there no life here? An explanation is because it wanted to go elsewhere, because life just goes everywhere it can. It doesn't choose one place to go. It goes everywhere. So if you look at a place on Earth, you have to say, because life can't go here. That has to be the reason why you don't see life here is because it just couldn't get here. It can't thrive here. It, it, it's you know too hot, too, too dry, too cold, whatever it is, it can't work here. That's your explanation uh, for life on Earth. So that would similarly have to be the explanation for a dead empty universe. You can't say, well, life isn't here because it decided to go somewhere else. Life would decide to go everywhere it could. If this is a place it could go and it's not here, you have to say, why didn't life go here? Let me ask, on these different sightings that people have, and I know you've said before that you don't look at specific reports and you would have to look at atmospheric phenomena and various other aspects of different sightings, but people do report seeing various different shapes of objects some of them being bright and shiny you know classic flying saucers you hear about triangles battleship size craft the the more common or or newer object discussed especially with the navy pilots have been tic-tac shaped objects or, or maybe classic cigar shapes would that suggest to you that i know these objects you've described as puzzling that they are all of different origin or do you think that these objects, not necessarily assuming they're coming from far away or that far away, that they are all of the same origin, but for different purposes? Again, the key thing is to generate a whole scenario and then ask how believable is that entire scenario? So given that there would be multiple origins, of course, it wouldn't be puzzling that they look different, but it is puzzling that there would be multiple origins. Because remember, if the universe is dead and empty, that's at odds with it all being full of life. So one way to solve that is the panspermia siblings, where there's only a small number of other aliens out there, maybe only one, and then they're here. The more other ones there are, the more puzzling this gets, right? So what if you postulate there's a hundred panspermia siblings, right? Well, now you have to have, imagine this 
first civilization going out and taming all of them and making sure they all followed the rule. But somehow this rule that they're all following is allowing them all to visit here. You know, how are they going to enforce this rule if they're allowing that many different visitors to go that many different places? You see the problem? That is, each new place that shows up, they need to send somebody there to make sure they follow the rules, but they don't need a whole bunch of different people all you know, doing different things going there. That seems a recipe for breaking the rules. If you allow that many different exceptions, you're not going to keep this thing going for 100 million years. Remember, that's what we're postulating. They chose to not expand, to not allow any part of them to do that. They lasted for 100 million years, and they succeeded in preventing any part of them from doing that. If there are now other alien civilizations out there that appeared between the first and us, they would have to make sure all of them followed the rule. But that has to mean not very many things going around and doing stuff, which means that the minimal strategy for dealing with us would just be to have one group come to us. So it makes much more sense than that this one group is just expressing itself with different shapes than that these shapes are coming from different places because it's just hard to believe that you would allow this many different places to come here in order to explain this idea that there's just you know one group that wants to stop us. And as you say, it's still the idea that if there were multiple groups, there's still going to be a hierarchy because there would have been that first group that's always going to be further ahead and more advanced. It somehow would have made sure the other ones followed the rule and then created some integrated policing structure that that guaranteed that. And that, that would be pretty hard. But that's what we have to postulate to look up in the universe and say, it's all empty. Nobody's doing anything that we can see. How does that make any sense? So, so again, the key idea is any one piece can make sense, but when you put all the pieces together, then they can have conflicts with each other when you're trying to create a scenario that makes sense. Let me ask you, Robin, in the time we've got left, because you've been really generous so far, and I really do hope to yourself and the listeners, I've managed to make some sense of the conversation. Um, it's it's a fascinating discussion, and hopefully I've kept up my end to some degree with you, Robin. Um, I want to ask about the, the James Webb images we saw the other day. I think it's very timely given what you talk about and what the, the paper proposes that we've just seen some incredible images dating back 13 billion years into the universe. What were your first thoughts when you when you saw those images? Well, pretty. Uh, with respect to aliens, uh, you know, in our analysis of gravity aliens, what we say is that how many alien civilizations you might expect to see out there depends on this key parameter of how fast they expand. If they would expand slowly, then we should see hundreds of vast alien spheres of control out there in the universe. If they expand fast enough, then we should expect to see zero of them. But even if we only saw one or two, the model predicts they would be enormous in the sky, much larger than the full moon. So that means you don't really need to look a long way off at fine details to distinguish these theories. If you want to say, are the aliens out there expanding fast or slow? You just say, do I see any enormous spheres in the sky that look different than the regions around them? And for that, again, even our naked eye is good enough as long as we're looking in the right sort of frequencies to tell the difference. So here you've got this enormously sophisticated telescope that can look even more finely all the way across the universe in very tiny angular scales. We don't need that in order to 
judge this basic fact, are there enormous spheres in the sky or not? Uh, so for the basic purpose of you know, figuring out where we are in the universe and what the aliens are like, the detail this telescope is showing us isn't very relevant. It's pretty and hopefully we'll learn a lot of other things about the nature of galaxies and the natures of other things. One of the things they showed is, uh, you know, oxygen in the atmosphere of a planet uh, a few yeah. hundred light years away. And that's interesting from the point of view of asking how many planets out there might have life on them at very early stages. But the key thing we know is that, you know, there is almost no vast civilizations out there. So the more planets we see what plausibly have life in earlier stages, then the, the, the more we have to expect difficulties later on in the process. Because the one thing we can be pretty confident of is getting to our level or even a bit further is extremely rare. So there has to be what I've called a great filter, some process that makes it very difficult to go from simple dead matter all the way up to where we are and then all the way to be very visible in the universe. So if we actually saw, say, oxygen in the atmosphere of a planet such that we believe that was because of life on that planet, well, that suggests that the great filter is not at the very first stage of having life exist at all. It's at some later stage in the process before you get to where we are. And you have to worry then it's after where we are. <laughs> that is what we look up as we see no huge civilizations out there, but we're not quite there yet. And there could be more obstacles between where we are and to get to that stage. And in order to sort of save the theory that it's easy going from here on, you have to believe that all the tough going was in the past. But the more you see earlier stages where it doesn't look so hard, the more you have to worry that the tough going is in our future. And that's bad news. You mentioned that James Webb isn't necessarily going to show us those things that we could be looking for much closer to home. The Galileo project, is that something you're aware of that's spearheaded by uh, Avi Loeb? I, I know that there's some project to just take pictures in our atmosphere of unusual phenomena and then maybe catch something interesting. So that's what we're talking about? Yes, uh, they're looking to put up several different telescopes and different equipment around the planet, well, various different it places. seems like a relatively cheap way to maybe find something interesting. I'm happy to support it. But, you know, the key under the scenario that I've talked about, you know, they're going to adjust to our behavior to still stay at the edge of our visibility. So the prediction would be, we would get more confident that there's something really there going on, but we wouldn't actually learn that much more about them. We would just learn they really are there because under this hypothesis, they're trying to convince us they're there and that they're impressive, but not reveal very much more. And then that's what we could hopefully learn to be finally convinced they really are there and they really are accelerating in enormous, you know, capabilities. They really have amazing things we can't do they really deserve to be seen as our top dog if like me you have ever had to go looking for a designer illustrator or voiceover artist it can be difficult to know where to start that's where the folks at fiverr have created the world's largest marketplace for digital services 
with an incredible database of talented freelancers to cover every one of your business needs. Whether you need a new website, a voiceover for your podcast, or someone to manage your social media accounts, Fiverr has you covered. The unique term for a service offered by a seller on Fiverr is called a gig. When creating gigs, sellers can choose their starting price point. Sellers can take this a step further and offer gig packages to buyers using those gig packages. These contain multiple price ranges and sellers can offer buyers various and tailored service packages. In this way, buyers can pick and choose from all that's offered according to their particular requirements. There truly is something for every budget with your payments protected every time. That's really important. Your payment won't be released until you approve the work, so there's no paying for work that isn't of the required standard, giving you the complete control you need to get the perfect product for your business. And for more peace of mind, Fiverr's support team are available 24-7 to answer any questions or provide the help you need. So if you've been fishing around the net for the right solution, stop. Use the perfect solution and go to Fiverr, that's F-I-V-E-R-R, and find the perfect freelance services for your business today. You can help support this podcast by using my special link, zen.ai forward slash UFO5, that's Z-E-N dot A-I slash UFO and the number five, the next time you need to book a freelancer. Details are in the description. It's dangling the carrot on the treadmill, or I don't suppose you want the carrot on the treadmill, probably the chocolate bar if you're if you're running towards a treat. But like you say, it's always just one to, one step too far ahead of us. And it's always going to be there that they show us what we need to see, but not necessarily what we want to see. Would that be right? Well, they don't want to show us many details. Again, anything we would hate. Can't sh- let us see them eating babies or whatever it is. Okay. So they're not going to like send us the galactic encyclopedia of their history, right? Not going to hand us, you know, technology for fusion, right? Unless they can do that without saying much. But under this hypothesis, we would eventually be convinced, yeah, it's really going on. It's really there. It's really happening. And that's that's worth knowing. But so interestingly, under this hypothesis, they don't think they're much of a rust to persuade us of this. They got a lot of time. So therefore, we're, we're not almost at this point where they're worried about us, right? So presumably they've got a button somewhere. And if we get too uppity, they push the button and we're gone. And the, so the, the reset uh, button. Yeah. Well, you know, thing that erases us, but you know, if, if we got too threatening to them, too, a, too capable of say finding them and destroying them or expanding without them being able to stop us, then before we got to that point, they would be able to just stop us. Right. But that has to be true. They have to have such a thing ready. And, Plausibly, they they don't think we're close. They're not in a rush, right? Because otherwise they would be a little more aggressive about showing themselves to make sure we saw them, right? And they're not that aggressive. They're hanging out at the edge and they're, they seem to be okay with that. They seem to be okay with letting it take us a while to figure it out. And, and another effort I want to get your thoughts on that's just been announced recently was NASA's own independent study into UFOs. How do you see that? playing out and is that potentially something again that could bear any fruit so you know i'm a futurist in many ways and in the futurist world there's a lot of people who pay attention to every new news release about somebody who's got some new thing that might be a new gadget right and i tend to think look if you're going to focus on long time scales that don't get lost in everyday's news fluctuations 
look at the long-term trends and focus on that. So similarly, I would say, look, if you think that UFOs might be aliens, we're talking a long-term game here, a long-term situation. You know, we've gone at least 70 years with people making reports. It's mostly been treated skeptically. Opinion is evolving only very slowly. At the moment, among most you know, prestigious intellectuals, it's still pretty taboo. It's still pretty ridiculed. That's likely to stay that way for a while. It may slowly change and come over, but you're talking many decades. We're not talking, you know, next year. So I think you just have to think of this as an interesting fluctuation in the short term that might, you know, push things a bit in the right direction in the long term, but you can't get too excited about each short term fluctuation right? Because again, this is a long game. We've had 100,000 UFO reports out there written down over the last 70 years. One or two more aren't going to make that much difference. They slowly add another study, another group. It isn't going to make that much difference. Because, you know, I can just tell you from the inside of knowing prestigious intellectuals, especially those in the fields most thought seen as expertly close to this, it's a strong consensus that this stuff is silly and uh, should just not be taken very seriously. And that's just going to take a long time to change. That's just the facts. So I can't give you very much optimism about fast, short-term progress. Sorry. That's okay. Everyone's allowed their opinion and that's it. You've, you've put it across really well. I want to ask you just a couple of listener questions to finish off in the time we've got. Um, Question from Matt. He asks, where where does religion play a part in your theory? So I just got a question like this yesterday on a, on a different podcast. Somebody asked about what about what about all the paranormal stuff reported with you know UFO reports? Hmm. So the theory I gave you is a theory where all the usual scientific theories are basically right. And yet, even so, here there are aliens visiting us. And it took a bit of work to put together a scenario like that. Mm -hmm. And I would actually say there's a prior probability of one in a thousand on that scenario, which is high enough to be worth looking at the evidence because, say, in a typical murder trial, the prior might be one in a million, that any one person was murdered by any one other associate. So um, that's my best guess. But now if you want to add into the hypothesis, oh, and we're wrong about a bunch of uh, very basic theories about how things work, there really are ghosts and fairies <laughs> and ESP, and somehow the aliens find in their interest to use that stuff, I struggle to come up with a hypothesis that makes sense of that where I don't have to have a much lower probability. Right. Uh, and so if you throw in some sort of religion hypothesis, I'm going to have to do the same. I'm going to have to say, look, I'm going to buy into the usual scientific consensus theories on most things. And I'm going to try to ask how within the space of our usual way of thinking about us, could maybe there be aliens around who are looking like UFOs? And I can come up with something like that. I have to do a little work, so I have to give it maybe a one on a thousand prior, which isn't, you know, huge, but it's good enough to make you look at the evidence. But again, if you, th if you throw more things into the mix and you say, okay, but now there really is ESP. <laughs> And now there really are ghosts. And now explain why the aliens want to make us see ghosts. I'm going to go, first of all, I think it's pretty unlikely there are ghosts. And second of all, why would the aliens need to make us see ghosts? I don't get it. <laughs> How does that achieve their purposes? Like, under this scenario, we know why they're here. They don't want us to expand. The ghost thing doesn't seem to help. 
So I don't get it, right? So I can't make sense of it. Doesn't mean it might not be true. It just means it's not fitting for me in my most likely scenario I can construct. And Matt had a follow-up that in that model, is there a room or place for alien abduction to play a part in this or, or any kind of alien contact? Well, again, again, you know, think about the simplest theory of why they would be here and what they would, what's the purpose, right? Their simple purpose is to be our top dog, to convince us that they exist and that they are more impressive than us. So how would abducting people help with that? It looks a lot more risky. <laughs> They're risking a lot more close contact, a lot more ways we would find details about them. They're doing it in ways that like don't make other people believe it very easily, right? They're not like showing up abducting people in Times Square, They're doing it off on the edge. And so I just don't see how it achieves the plausible purpose of impressing us in ways that convince us they exist and that they're friendly and high. So, you know, in fact, also one of the key criteria is they need to not be threatening. And what, in fact, UFO reports do seem to be consistently not threatening in terms of they don't seem to run up and attack a fighter plane or something and they don't destroy things, whereas they obviously could. And that would be one key thing about being our top dog. And when we, of course, you know, are the top dog for horses or dogs, we, we, we use a little bit of violence and harm to discipline them, but we make it clear that's just because they're being punished for something. But otherwise, we're mostly their friends and their supporters, and we are trying to help them, right? Well, that's what they would need to be doing with us, seeming to be unthreatening. So the abductions look kind of threatening. They don't look so friendly. This, this doesn't seem a wise move, right? It, it doesn't communicate the thing they're trying to communicate, and it doesn't make them seem you know, friendly. I just not seeing how it makes sense as as a strategy. Uh, and let me ask one final question from Newman. I'll ask the question and then I'll give you the context he's given me behind it as well. Um, Newman asks, what kind of relationships amongst intergalactic empires would the grabby alien model imply? Would it be similar to intergalactic Cold War or colonial politics? He gives the context of, in ufology, a frequently propagated claim is that Earth is a theatre stage of intergalactic Cold War between different species for the control of our genetic and spiritual development. We've got tall greys, tall whites and Palladians. If they really exist, the behaviour might stem from them just being grabby aliens. So under the grabby aliens model, again, this is without panspermia siblings. This is just a simple model. They appear roughly once per million galaxies, they expand near the speed of light and they keep expanding until they meet each other. And that would be roughly a billion years from now if we did that. At that point, they meet each other and then they may or may not have conflicts at those borders. But until then, they just are having internal expansion and uh, creation. So by assumption, we are not now within the sphere of control of gravity aliens. That is, the point is they would be very visible and obvious. So that means we can't now be within the sphere of conflict of two <laughs> sets of grabby aliens because that would be even more obvious, right? Uh, so the simplest version of this theory says that that's just not applying. Now, we can start to make variations. One variation would be somehow what they're doing in the universe, they're changing things, but somehow in a way it doesn't make a visible difference. Somehow we're just not looking at the right sort of thing to be able to see the difference. Mm -hmm. 
that's hard for me to believe, but at least that would be a variation you could think of. But now again, um, by assumption, we would just not at all be powerful enough to be worth fighting over. <laughs> they could simply come here and take over. If they just arrived here, they could just, you know, in a short time, change everything here to their liking. We have little to offer them in terms of direct power. So now, but there is a way that quiet alien civilizations can serve the purposes of um, loud ones. So um, the idea would be there's a lot more quiet ones than loud ones. And loud ones are thinking a lot about what happens when they meet the other loud. And they want to collect data about what are all civilizations like? Because they're trying to guess what will these aliens be like when we meet them? And they're going to be really eager for data like that. And when they finally meet one other grabby alien civilization, they will, at that point in space-time, they will have never met any others before. So their only data they have about aliens is the quiet ones they meet along the way. They may come across the ruins of quiet ones or quiet ones that are just long-lived but stay very local. And the, that data would be very valuable to them. They want to know what are quiet alien civilizations like as a way to guess what will these grabby ones be like when we meet them. That isn't necessarily consistent with them being peaceful. <laughs> they may come and disassemble everyone and take all the data that way. But still, they would, the, the, you know, the quiet of civilizations per gram or something would just be much more valuable as data than just as raw material to make stuff. Because again, moving across billions of light years to finally meet uh, aliens, they will have vast stars and planets and everything to use to do things, but they'll only meet maybe a couple quiet alien civilizations. And those would then be enormously valuable as data. So if for some reason some grabby alien civilization came past here and is expanding out and somehow we didn't notice them, the thing we would conclude is that they're, they study us very carefully, not because they're afraid of us, not because we can do much for them, just because we're their best data about these strange aliens they're going to meet in the future. They just want to know what are aliens like. It would certainly put us in our intergalactic place in the universe, wouldn't it, to know that we were just a data sample for some other species that was so in, much further evolved. In addition evolved. to a data sample, we can also be a coordination point. So this is kind of interesting. <laughs> when two grabby alien civilizations meet, they may have both gotten data from the same quiet alien civilizations. So those quiet aliens and civilizations could be a coordination point when they want to know what should we expect them to think. We can say, well, they saw the same quiet one we did. So this quiet one could create common expectations about what we should both expect to happen when we meet. And so we quiet alien civilizations could serve that purpose to not just give one an expectation, but give them both simultaneously the expectation of what are aliens like. We could be their main idea of what, what each other are like. They might each assume the other one is like us. That's a fascinating idea. I want to finish just that you mentioned you're writing a book currently. If you could give us a little bit of information on the book and obviously when we can expect that to be released if you've got that information to hand. Uh, if there's no date even for releasing, it's still being written. <laughs> but the idea is we talked about why people might want to stay as a quiet alien civilization and how difficult that might be 
and therefore how this would be the biggest choice we might face in the future is whether or not to stay quiet or whether to become loud. And so being as that's such an important question, I wanted to frame that question and make it vivid. <laughs> that is, I want to set up the context of grabby aliens and quiet versus loud aliens and our future and the things that might happen to us if we compete or allow ourselves to change and the kinds of coordinations that we might like to do to set up and make vivid this choice we will have between staying quiet and becoming loud. And I may have an opinion that we should become loud, but it's not my place to beat you over the head with my opinion. This is a choice that may not be made for thousands of years. And later on when it is made, they will make no much more than we do now. So my opinion is less important than setting up the question to say, let's start thinking about this question. Let's start collecting opinions and collecting considerations to prepare us for the day when we may someday want to make this choice. Robin, it's been fascinating speaking with you. I really hope I've managed to do it justice. It's, it's breath of fresh air to discuss different ideas from a different perspective as well. And the model certainly is interesting. And when that book is released, it'd be great to have you on to talk about it back on the podcast. Be happy to come. Uh, and if anyone's got any follow-up questions for Robin, I do believe uh, you'll be speaking to Dan Zetterstrom down the line for Colouring Outside the Lines. I think he was arranging an interview with you for, for some time in the near future. So that's something people could get in touch with Dan about if they've got any follow-ups, is it will be a different type of conversation he has with you. I have generally just been accepting all invitations to do conversations like this. So if anybody has invited me, I've probably said yes. Yeah, I, th I think you have. But yeah, any questions, send, it, send them over to Dan and he will certainly get those in there for you. Robin, it's been a pleasure speaking with you. Nice talking to you. That is all for this week's show. Thank you very much for listening. Please remember to leave the podcast a review on your chosen platform. You can like, retweet and subscribe. That would all be very much appreciated. The shows are being uploaded onto YouTube as we speak more and more. You can sign up at patreon.com forward slash that UFO podcast to access the shows ad free as well. Please get in touch on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, that UFO podcast. Of course, on Twitter, it's at UFO, U-A-P-A-M. And again, folks, as always, keep looking up. You never know what you might see. It wasn't a tic-tac and not quite a saucer, more like a hubcap designed by Chaucer. A little Baroque and quite steampunk, like Alice was playing bass for the Parliament of France. The little fucker hovered right outside of my window, and when I shoved out the screen, he made it an issue. I don't think he expected me to see his ass, but I'd had some champagne and smoked a little more. Meditative game of fate, full on meta. I can't imagine how it could have been any better. I got to the top of the stairs, and there he was. I'm like, you awake? I was about to abduct you, cuz. over
Tic-tac and not quite a saucer. <laughs> <laughs>